Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, September 25th, and this is the weekly market update. So the disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this video or here on the podcast is not to be taken as an investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. I do not know you. You do not know me. I'm just a guy on the internet. And it's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, first things first. No, the uranium bull is not over. Um, this is what we talked about. I got interviewed a couple times last week uh, by a couple people. And one of the questions that I was asked um, was... A discussion or I tried to get into the inter into the answers when I was talking was the volatility that's inherent in this particular sector. And you see what has happened. Um, this is just a chart of URNM, which is the um, one ETF, one of the ETFs that I've recommend that if you're going to play this thing, this is the way you should go. But you would note, uh, if you know anything about uh, moving averages and everything, this is a 200-day moving average, the red line, this blue line is the 50-day moving average, this is the daily price movements. And you see that uh, back when the Sprott vehicle came uh, to fruition or was born, um, you saw how this thing ramped up, right? So you basically almost doubled in about three or four weeks. Um, when you have that kind of movement and you get that far, you get this far of an advance this quickly, you're going to see a pullback. It's just going to happen. Um, you're going to see, this is still a bullish framework. Um, what I would anticipate is this thing needs to consolidate this price. I don't know where. Uh, you'll see this 50-day start to turn up radically uh, as the price drifts down. It's more than likely what will happen. But, you know, as long as we're not penetrating the 200-day and we're not making this 50-day crossover, the 200-day, that would be bad. Or if the 200-day slowly rolled over and started going down, that would be bad. Th this is what you're going to see. We've talked about this um, several times, that if you go back and do your research, if you do some homework this weekend, look at the previous bull market from 2004 to 2007, and you will note you'll be able to pick out, just look at any uranium stock, look at Cameco, for example, you will note the pullbacks, the extreme pullbacks that you get. Uh, I think, like I said before, I used the example of Forsyth and it had like five, 50% or more pullbacks on its journey from 25 cents to like 10 bucks. So this isn't really anything, nothing's changed fundamentally. The fundamentals are good. Um, you know, the initial wave of enthusiasm has been absorbed by this market, the blast off, you know, the FOMO, the shiny object, this is what this causes, big, big move higher Then you, you know, people have made a lot of money here. I mean, this is a constituent, the constituents of this are all the uranium companies. So there's stocks in here that went up tremendously and, um, people are going to take profits, right? But we're in this for the long haul. We're, we're in this for the big move. And uh, so all of the fundamentals are still in place. And my advice would be, you know, somebody asked me what they should do if they were not positioned when this thing, you know, 
this was back a few weeks ago and I was like, take an initial position and then keep your powder dry because there will be pullbacks. When you get the pullbacks, like we're seeing now, I don't know how far it drops. Don't ask me, I don't know, I have no clue. Typically you'd wanna see, you know, after a move from 50 to 100, you'd wanna see, you know, uh, anywhere between a 33 to, you know, 50 to 60% pullback. You could see that conceivably. So this, no, you know, this thing could easily have already pulled back where it's going to pull back to. Um, but you could go sideways for a while. You know, you have to let these moving averages catch up. It just seems to be how things are. If you look at any long-term chart of any long-term uptrend, uh, that's what you want to see. But this is going to be very volatile, like we've said before. Um, this is the territory you're playing in. I mean, look, here's an example right here. I mean, you went basically from 71 down to 50. Okay, so that's, you know, almost a 30% decline, and that was over several months. This Things are moving a lot quicker. And the other thing is, is now there's no premium. I believe there's no premium currently on the Sprott vehicle. So that would mean that Sprott will not be in the market buying. They will only, as far as I understand it, uh, it only makes sense for them to be buying uranium when the there's a premium to the net asset value of the vehicle. So uh, I don't think this is over with. Be patient. Like I said, if you went in there and shot your whole wad, then this is how people get discouraged, right? You guy buys, go, goes all in at 98. And then this thing's, you know, a week later, he's, he's down by 30%. So uh, that's dispiriting. That's what I warned about. So if you are doing this like you're supposed to be, I mean, we were in this thing several years ago, like I said, I mean, I don't really watch it day to day anymore because I, I'm just, you know, cognizant of what's going on just for what I see on my Twitter news feed and things or people that I follow on Twitter. But, you know, I mean, this isn't really anything. Um, I'm used to this. So if you're going to be in this, you have to be prepared for this. And there will be more of these. And I don't, like I said, this may not be over with. And you see how sharp some of the drops can be. You can see how it gapped up. It's, you know, stair steps up and elevator down. So um, th this, in the context of the overall bear market, this will be nothing, okay, when we expand this chart out over years and turn it into a weekly chart. So that's about all I can say. That's the encouragement I can give you. Um, uh, I, I'm not really worried. It's not an issue for me. Um, but, you know, when you're down like this and you've got capital that, and, you know, you want to put it to work, that's what uh, you should be doing. You know, you should be going in and getting yourself another tranche and, uh, you know, see what happens. If it drops further, then you go in and get yourself another tranche. You just don't blow your whole wad. That's the whole lesson. We talked about that ad nauseum. So I hope that you've taken that advice. And I hope that you understand that. And please go back to the previous bull market, go on stock charts, go on some stock uh, chart tool on the internet and go back to that period between 2004 and 2007, pick various uranium stocks that were in existence back then. And just, you know, put in different time frames and look at the declines, look at the upside, you know, from where it started to where it ended, but look in between how many up cycles up and down, down drafts were there or, or um, uh, drawdowns were there and what was the percentage decline? And that will kind of prep you for what you can expect. And uh, so, yeah, this is not over with. Um, it's not even close to being over with. So uh, that's my advice on this. So great uh, tweet here by Javier Blas. Um, he has a good book too that you should check out. 
Um, it's pretty good about energy markets or commodities in general. But I kind of just like this little tweet he put out. The week in energy markets. Brent crude, $78 a barrel. That's a three-year high. Asian coal, $185 a ton. That's a 13-year high. German one-year power, 108 euros per megawatt, record high. European natural gas, $26 per million BTU, record high. Um, you know, CO2 emissions, $63 per ton, record high. So uh, this is kind of playing into what we were talking about. You know, I got the title of the slide here. Can you smell the energy crisis? It's coming. Um, and, you know, what I like about this is as far as like the energy markets are concerned, especially crude, it's really climbing a wall of worry. That's what you want to see. I mean, people really still don't care about it. People still don't think that uh, we're in a bull market for oil. People are not paying attention to the fundamentals and the drawdowns that we're seeing in inventory. And I think there's some misconceptions in the oil market, right? I think that OPEC spare capacity, there's this view, I've read it in the mainstream media, and I've heard several people say it uh, already. Well, you know, the spare capacity that OPEC has will temper any oil price increases. And I think what people don't understand is, did it occur to anyone that maybe the spare capacity isn't exactly what OPEC said it was or what Russia has said? I, and we've seen some clues on this. I think I talked about this in a previous video, but it's starting to become a little bit more clear that maybe OPEC and some of these other people just say things to say it. Um, as you well know, uh, OPEC decided to start increasing production of uh, 400,000 barrels a month. I think it started in August, or maybe it was this month, I can't remember. And going forward, I think through the end of this year and into the next year. But what we've seen already is some of the OPEC members are not pumping oil up to their quotas. Uh, Russia is another one that's not uh, necessarily meeting its quota. So if you were clamoring for, you know, a lot of these smaller OPEC countries were clamoring for, you know, being able to pump more, and now they're not meeting their their quotas. I would suggest to you that's because of the capital, the dearth of capital that we've seen in this business not being spent to maintain or increase production. So an extractive industry without sufficient capital being recycled, this is what we can expect. And we've already seen in several instances around the world where we're already back at 2019 uh, oil demand levels. So uh, people are not paying attention to what's going on. And uh, we're not seeing mainstream confidence in, in this energy bull market. Excuse me. We are seeing... Uh, some interest come back though, as evidenced by this slide. This was a slide or a tweet uh, that Eric Nuttall put out. Uh, if you know Eric Nuttall, one of our favorite analysts to follow in Canada, he runs uh, Nine Point Partners, which is a um, oil and gas fund based in Canada. One of the, what I call last of the Mohicans, if you will, one of the last guys who survived the, the downdraft in the last two years. And uh, his fund is up uh, tremendously. He's a uh, he was, he's all the time, a lot of, he's a great Twitter follow. Uh, he's, uh, I had to get another slide of his on here this week. But uh, he said, this is a, 
This is from a uh, one of his buddies or analysts over at one of the big Canadian banks. And so what are they seeing? Investors are returning to energy names. They're talking about generalist investors. And here's the note that was sent over from the, the analyst. First, this time feels different. There, I said it. The past few months, we have seen an increasing depth and breadth of investors in energy. We see accounts dipping their toes in names that have been forgotten about for years. Euros are asking on large caps. That's European investors are asking on large cap energy stocks. Domestic accounts are going down market. In the past few weeks, I've traded BTE, CR, SRX, PEY, CPJ, CJ, and lots more with great generalist mutual funds. Quant-based funds are back buying energy after blowing it out in August. Attitudes and opinions are certainly more optimistic. No more ESG excuses. Endowment disposition headlines don't get feared. Dips are bought with gusto and sellers are drying up. Every day I have a new introductory, inter, introductory call or re-introductory call with a new account that is looking for an energy guy as they are getting more active. This time feels different. And that's what, you, that's what we were waiting for, the return of the generalist investor. Uh, energy is the best performing S&P sector this year, guys. If you are not going to be investing in energy and you're a fund manager, you're going to underperform. It's that simple. Um, we've already hit my targets for Brent. I mean, as we close today, Brent's at $78 a barrel. Um, West Texas Intermediates, I think 73. I think my target for West Texas this year was 75. We're going to have to probably raise that. I think we get into the 80, $82 a barrel by the end of the year is quite possible. And I think it's going to be by the second quarter, second or third quarter of next year, we could be well over a hundred dollars a barrel. So, um, this, like I said, there's been insufficient investment and now we are going to, uh, see the fruits of that, not just in oil though, right? All across, as we showed in the Javier Blas tweet at the start of the presentation, all across the energy complex. We've been talking about it, folks. It's coming. It's coming home now. We're on our way to the bank to cash the check. Okay, here's the uh, Eric Nuttall tweet. This is the guy you need to follow, one of the guys you need to follow on Twitter. Love this tweet. We do not need record oil prices to make a killing in oil stocks. That's my headline. What does Eric Nuttall say? Reminder, we do not need higher oil prices for energy stocks to continue to rally, in my opinion. We need only investors to believe in the oil price that, that they already see on their screens. That's right. This is, he, he's famous. This is why I like following him. He's famous for putting up these type of charts where you see the uh, EV to cash flow multiples at $70, uh, you see where they all are currently, and then you see the target multiple range based on history. We're well below that, okay? Uh, and you see some of the names, you see some of the symbols down there, you can take a look at them. Um, here's one we've talked about before, it's a favorite of ours, Athabasca, okay? Um, you got Suncor in here, you got some other ones. So, um, you know, we're they're still tremendously undervalued. And if we think the price is going up, then th th this just gets better. And why is that? Tremendous cash flow is being generated by these companies. They have downsized. A lot of them are not recycling cash back into production. What is the cash being recycled into? The managements have been clear on this for several quarters, guys. They're going to pay down debt. Once they get debt down to a manageable level, they are going to be start returning and have already started in many cases 
or doing it in conjunction with, with debt paydowns, recycling cash back to shareholders via dividends and share buybacks. Um, Eric Nuttall, who's a fund manager, he's been banging the drum when he meets with managements that they need. If no one else will buy your shares, you need to be buying your shares. And they've, and in many cases, have been doing that. Okay, so it's the old Walter Schloss model. Uh, one of my favorite uh, investors of all time. There's, you know, there's only a few things you can do with cash: pay down debt, buy back stock, uh, or pay dividends. Um, and if that's if you want to, you know, increase the equity value uh, for shareholders. Yeah, you can go out and do acquisitions and stuff like that. But the best thing to do is if you pay down debt, that's accretive to um, equity holders, right? Uh, just like paying down your mortgage, you can return cash to shareholders via stock buybacks if the stock is cheap, like they are all across the board here, or you can pay dividends, or you can do all three. And that is going to draw the general investor back into these stocks, and it appears that that is happening just as we forecast would happen. So I think that you can be poised over, you know, this is all coming together. I think that the headlines are going to even pull more. We're getting, you know, we've talked a lot about uranium recently, but the same effect happens in uh, the oil is, is going to happen in oil stocks and uh, a lot of the other, basically the whole energy complex. This is what's happening. So let's talk about the emergency emerging energy crisis. Had a lot of news this week. That's they're not you know it's not just one offs here and here. It's every week we're seeing these news items. Item: large zinc smelter cutting production due to high energy costs. One of the Europe's main zinc smelters, Nystar, will cut production at one of its European smelters due to rising energy costs in the continent at a time when premiums in the region are at six-year highs. Nyer Star's fully electrified zinc smelter, I can't pronounce this where this is in the Netherlands, uh, Boudel Dorplein, is curtailing production during peak times of day when power prices exceed the break-even cost of production. This is in response to the surge in regional power prices over the past year. So this is what we talked about. Energy permeates every activity in our lives. If the price of energy doubles, triples, or quadruples, what do you think that does to the price of the things that you buy? What does it do to the supply chain? What does it do to inflation and inflationary expectations? What happens to the supply of zinc if one of the main smelters in Europe is shutting down on and off, off again because it cannot make money at, at these tremendously high power prices because of the lack of gas, okay? What, what's, how, how does this reverberate through the economy? You know, this isn't a one-off. We've, we've shown numerous news items like this, and we will continue to do as they surface, because they're going to continue to surface. And we haven't even got into winter yet, folks. That's coming next. Okay, a winter of disconnect, discontent. It's coming. Item. Record high natural gas prices in Europe are impacting ammonia production margins. And as a result, Yara, this Yara is a big fertilizer producer, is curtailing production at a number of its plants. Okay, you need natural gas to make ammonia. Ammonia is an input into growing crops. Yara will by next week have curtailed around 40% of its ammonia production capacity. Yara will continue to monitor the situation with the objective to keep supplying customers, but curtailing production were necessary. Record high natural gas prices. Now, 
I'm going to show you another slide where interdependency of the economy is important. What happens when you start shutting down fertilizer plants? Okay. A byproduct of the fertilizer plants, when they make uh, a certain type of fertilizer, nitrogen fertilizer, whatever they're doing there, part of the byproduct of doing this is that they produce CO2. The CO2 is used at chicken processing plants. Okay. Again, energy is part of everything we do, everything we consume, and people take it for granted. And I've told you that this is coming. This is what I have been talking about for a year. Okay. That the underinvestment, the demonization of fossil fuels, the ESG, as Cuppy says, energy stops growing movement. And this is what's happening now. The noose, the garrot around the throat of the economy has now been tightened. Okay, it continues to be tightened. And now the economy is starting to choke in various areas. I just told you about the zinc smelter that's shutting down or trying to operate at different times of the day based on high gas prices. What do we have now in the UK? Item, the UK's largest chicken producer has warned the meat industry is at a breaking point and called on the government to tackle a gas crisis now threatening the country's food production. The meat industry is facing an acute shortage of carbon dioxide after surging gas prices prompted two large UK fertilizer plants to suspend production. See, I didn't even know this myself. I'm even learning things. So the production of fertilizer from these huge plants in the UK, which is natural gas is the input, they shut down because of what high gas prices, but the byproducts from that process are CO2, which is used by the chicken processing. Okay, now we're talking about the food supply. This is how interdependent things are. And so what people are calling for uh, is or the chicken, the livestock processing industry, or at least the chicken industry, is to get the government to keep these plants open, pay them, pay their gas bills, I guess, so that they can operate, so that they can get CO2, so they can process all the chicken for the, for, for the, for the UK. So what happens if they don't do this? What happens to chicken prices? You know, people don't run their businesses as charities at a loss, or if they don't have a product, and this filters back, if you read the article, filters back to the farm. You know, you just can't, if they can't process the chickens, you know, there's a, there's a supply chain, there's chicken farmers. They don't just keep the chickens there. Well, just hold them for another month. There's chicks in brooders right now that are, the whole supply chain gets backed up. And so you turn all that off or you destroy those animals or whatever you end up doing or you bankrupt those farmers. And when everything does, quote, return to normal, whatever that is, you've completely mucked up the entire supply chain. So it goes on. The meat industry is facing acute shortage of carbon dioxide after surging gas prices. Well, we talked about that. The supply of Bernard Matthews turkeys this Christmas was already compromised as I need to find 1,000 extra workers to process supplies. Now with no CO2 supply, Christmas will be canceled. Okay, so you got labor shortages, you have raw material shortages, the interdependency of these various industries and the products. You see, it's not just about motor fuel in a car. Buying a Tesla doesn't solve this. That's why uh, the lack of understanding by policymakers about how interdependent and how necessary uh, all of these things are to our livelihood is not fully understood. So when then you push a button over here and then another button pops out over there. Okay, that's why command control doesn't work. 
That's why a free market approach works. Price signals work. Interfering. There's no reason why Nord Stream 2 should be turned off, except for the fact that the United States doesn't want competition for LNG and does not want the Russians to have the geopolitical control that that gas gives them. But did any of these politicians read Putin's master's thesis? Because he talked about this 30 years ago when he wrote his master's thesis, an emerging new Russia using its natural resources to reclaim its former glory. It's all on the internet. You can read it. And nobody else did too. So they built Nord Stream 2. The Germans are stupid as far as their energy policy goes and trying to run a modern, the most modern manufacturing uh, in the Western hemisphere or in, the, uh, in, in Europe, excuse me, uh, on solar panels and wind. And when that didn't work, let's shut off our nukes. Let's, do, let's shoot both feet and then go run a marathon. I mean, the, the policy decisions compound on, on themselves. And Angela Merkel, 16 years, sails away, uh, the greatest chancellor of all time, you know, Miss, Mrs. Germany, whatever. And, you know, her policies were stupid. The policy decisions have consequences. You know, shut the nukes down. Brilliant. Okay, rely on natural gas. Where are you going to get your natural gas? Russia. Well, you know, Putin bad, don't let Nord Stream 2 online. And it just reverberates through all of this. But, you know, it's not, it's not my goal to uh, indoctrinate you or get you to understand geopolitics. I just mention it because this is what happens. The bottom line is energy prices are going to go very, they're going to go up a lot more than people think. And a lot of people are going to suffer. I mean, if, it, if there's no food available now, I mean, I'm not saying people are going to starve, but, you know, if there's a dearth of chicken, then people are going to, you know, buy other things. And then the price of that goes up. People got to eat. This is what causes political turmoil. Okay. Because nobody really understood, understands most of this stuff. So it's our opportunity. We're here. We got to kill. We got to eat what we kill. We're here to make money, not lose money. And so that's why we talk about these things. And this is why I try to explain it, all the interdependency and how all this stuff fits together. You have to try to understand this stuff. And not one person out of 10,000 has a clue on this stuff. There's just no interest. I mean, if you don't need to know, you don't know. So here's uh, another chart I pulled off Twitter. Um, total US natural gas storage in billions of cubic feet. And you can see we always max out right before the end of the year, which is when we enter winter. And then you see how we draw down each winter. We draw down our supplies and then we rebuild them uh, after the winter for the subsequent winter. But you could see the peaks are all around, you know, this 15,000 line here or above. And look where we're at going into this winter. Okay, look, look how it's dropping off. Um, this is why I say if we have a cold winter in the United States, we are going to be screwed. Prices are going to go you know, I don't know, $10, $12 in MCF? Could they get as high as in Europe, $20, $25 in MCF? You know, if there's six MCF energy equivalent in a barrel of oil, that means 26, you're paying almost four, $280 a barrel oil equivalent with the current natural gas price in Europe. Let me say that again. With the current natural gas price in Europe, that would be an oil per barrel equivalent of around $280 a barrel. How's that for hijinks? 
I tell you what, right now, the Biden administration is collapsing already. All, the last thing they need, the last thing they need right now going into the 2022 congressional elections is an energy crisis, but they're going to get one, but good. Okay, here we go again. I thought coal was going away. U.S. coal demand is rising, but supplies remain tight. Oh, are they? Coal demand and prices are booming as natural gas prices soar. Why? Fuel switching. If you have a plant where you can switch from natural gas to coal, you're doing it. But U.S. mining companies have not ramped up production to meet the new market conditions. Why? Labor issues, ESG mandates, equipment issues, supply chain, management scared, can't get financing and working capital. Who knows? I mean, you know, we demonize these industries and we need them. The U.S. Energy Information Administration recently said it expects coal demand from the U.S. electric power sector to increase by 100 million tons in 2021 and export demand to rise by 21 million tons compared to 2020. However, the agency also warned that constraints in capacity and transportation will limit the ability of producers to meet that demand. Quote, there is no extra coal out there to get, unquote. Quote, there's literally no more coal to squeeze out of the system, unquote. And so what would happen in a normal economic environment as these high prices would cause capital to come in and develop or turn back on old mines or develop new mines to supply the requisite material. But we've demonized coal. We said coal is bad. Coal must go away. Okay. And so if you have a operating coal mine right now, that's permitted and has reserves and has actual miners there mining, you're sitting in the cuckoo bird seat. You're minting cash. I am gonna be extremely excited as this third quarter comes to an end to see the earnings reports as we go through October for the previous quarter and the year over year comparisons for the various coal companies I follow and the various oil and natural gas companies. I think people are gonna be shocked at the cash flows. They're gonna be tremendous. Again, let me say it again. This is the quote from the article. Of course, I put links to the articles in the show notes. You can go read it yourself. There is no extra coal out there to get, unquote. There's literally no more coal to squeeze out of the system, unquote. Whether for making steel or generating power, quote, coal demand is incredible right now, unquote, both domestically and abroad. Alan Shaw, Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at railroad company Norfolk Southern Corp said during a September 10th transportation conference. And so we're right in the middle of this, guys. We've been here. We've been, like I said, we're on the way to the bank to cash to check. The companies that we have invested in have done tremendous. And I expect that they will continue. Now, this is not a one-way street. This is not a long-term investment. Eventually, uh, supply constraints get solved. Eventually these things, you know, but th I think this winter, you're going to see a lot of, the winter is going to probably be the time where we max out the prices and a lot of this stuff and probably going to be harvesting profits. Why? Because that's when the news, if the, if the weather goes the way I think it is, and we see a, a gas price at, say, not even European levels, at 10 or $12 in MCF in the U.S. And heaven help us if we do get to 20 or $22 an MCF on a spike, or if there's outages, or if there's, 
you know, the new news media will be all over it. Uh, it. The prices for all of these commodities will spike. The stock prices will go nuts. It may be time to harvest the profits then, but we'll have to take it as it comes. You know, the bad thing about this is, is that our gains, people are going to suffer. People are suffering already. If you're poor or lower middle class or working class person, you can't afford to have your, you know, what are you going to do when the, if you use a propane heater or heating oil and the price doubles or triples? Are you then forced in a position where you have young kids? It's like, okay, do we eat these chicken thighs, bologna, or pay the heating bill to keep the heat on when you live in a place where, you know, we're having a, a bad winter? People have to make those decisions. And this is just, a lot of this is, comes just from bad policies, bad policy making. You have a, I'm not going to get into it in this channel. This is for the other channel. I, I have to temper myself because it makes me angry. Okay. I saw a lot of people get hurt here in the state of Texas last year. People died. I remember vividly the, the two stories. One of the child that died, his mom laid him down. They didn't have any heat in their mobile home. This is right here in Houston where I'm currently working on a job. Comes back the next morning and the kid had frozen to death, hypothermia, because they didn't have heat in the place because of the outage. Another old couple, they found them, they were huddled in a recliner together, an old couple in their, I think, early 80s, the man and the husband and the wife under some blankets. They both expired from hypothermia. This is real life. This is not, this is not, you know, about, you know, uh, NRDC having their little functions or, you know, these wealthy people on the coast talking about CO2. This is real life for tens of millions and hundreds of millions of people. Messing around with energy, with no coherent energy policy, just going from election to election, swinging from left to right, back and forth with no, and pe people are getting hurt. Okay, again, this is uh, the Canada's third largest pension fund beefs up plan to cut carbon emissions. This was behind a paywall, but basically the gist of it was, here we go with another dumb, dumb, uh, I think it's the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, uh, dumb, dumbs, uh, worst investors. This, these guys are worse than retail investors, these pension funds, right? They're always doing everything at the wrong time. So they're selling all their energy stocks as in Canada, by the way, which is an energy producing country, a massive energy producing country at the inflection point where we're going to have through the roof energy prices, where energy is the best performing sector in the S&P this year and probably will be next year. And these clowns are selling their, uh, because they're making a, a political statement on ESG, whatever that means, because they're going to cut carbon emissions. Cutting carbon emissions means how many humans do you want to die? That's how I'm defining it from now on. I'm not listening because I, I'm not listening to any more of these communists or these virtue signaling, earth worshiping weirdos. Um, car, plans to cut carbon emissions is how many people do you want to, to die? Because that's what it really means. This is idiotic. Life on this planet is carbon based. Get over it. Okay, that's it for this week, guys. Um, we've talked about it. The opportunities there. Um, I'm it's still not in the, it's not the zeitgeist among the investing class. People are talking about tech. People are not convinced that these prices can stay here. People are not paying attention to the underinvestment that I think is going to be the catalyst for the 
uh, price explosion that we could see in many of these stocks. We've already seen tremendous moves in a lot of energy stocks. You know, we've, public, we've talked publicly about Sandridge. It's one of the few unhedged gas producers in the United States, okay? We're at five or over $5 in MCF already this um, going into this winter. We're not even into the winter yet. And I think, you know, the stock has went from like a dollar or under a dollar to like 10 or $11 already. So, you know, in the last couple of years. So there's more to come. People are going to be shocked on the moves on some of these things, in my view. So I urge you to take a look at this. I urge you to investigate this for yourself because the opportunity across it, not just uranium, the entire energy complex is once, once in a generation. I'll put it that way. I don't want to say once in a lifetime, but at least once in a generation. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I appreciate all the new listeners coming on board. Please heed my advice. Don't just get excited because you hear some guy on the internet and shoot your whole wad. Scale into these positions. Don't get FOMO. That is all. Talk to you next week.